We invite you uh, to pick up your kids downstairs after the service. Love seeing kids in the service on Sunday. That's awesome. Well, for those who don't know me, my name is Aaron, pastor here. Love being a pastor here. Those online, thanks for joining us. We're looking forward to um, opening a new book. It might be very new to some of you because it, it tends to be a book that uh, we either skip, ignore, or are very apprehensive about, as, uh, even as followers of Jesus, not sure how to handle this book. And it's uh, very friendly if you're new to the Bible in this sense. It's at the end, so you can find it really easily. Uh, so we're going to encourage you, and we want to do this every time we open up the Bible. Uh, bring your Bibles to church or download an app. You've got a moment to do that because we want you to know and, and be comfortable with reading God's Word for yourself. Uh, so we're in the book of Revelation. Uh, we're reading from chapter one, and I'm going to be reading the majority of it this morning. It'll also be behind me on the screen. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Even to all that he saw, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth." To him who loves us and who has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom uh, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and, I, and on turning I saw seven gold, golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, his hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, and he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. And the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of, de of death and Hades. Uh, again, I mentioned that this is a, an unfamiliar book. For many of us, we're probably apprehensive in reading it. 
Some of us have grown up or, or certainly been in a church context a long time, and we have no familiarity with this. And it's my hope, it's my encouragement as we open it to actually give back to you, the church, a word of encouragement that's, um, although not directly written to us, is still for us as a word of encouragement. And so what we're going to do this morning as an introduction is we're going to be laying down uh, essentially four ways or principles, guidelines, um, think of them as uh, guardrails as you read this book for yourself and as we progress in this series to help us understand it for ourselves. Uh, and so jumping right in, the first is that this is not primarily written to us. It has an original audience. It's very plain in the text. It says, John, this is the same John, author of the, the Gospel of John, early on, fourth book in our New Testament, who, who writes on, of the account of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection. And John is writing on, says, the island of Patmos. Think of ancient day Alcatraz. This was an island that was a prison where workers were sent to mine and quarry marble and bring that back to the Roman Empire. And we know that uh, he's either there as a willful missionary to those members of the community or that he has actually been imprisoned, kind of marooned himself. And, and in that place, while he is sharing the good news of Jesus, he is also, whether he's aware of it or not, we're, we're moving into an era of the church where he is the last and the only member of Jesus' disciples, his closest friends and followers, who did not die a horrific death. So there, there's weight to his experience. There's weight to his words. And I, I don't know which one you would prefer, to die uh, a horrific death following Jesus or to be the last one knowing that all your friends have gone before you or at least coming into that understanding. But what's more is he writes a, a word to the seven churches in Asia. Think modern, the area of modern-day Turkey. And we'll hear more about those churches in later chapters. Um, but the idea is simply this. This is not for, it's for us, but it's not primarily to us. So nothing written in Revelation can be understood in a unique way to us that it didn't already have meaning for the original audience. If it didn't say it to its original audience, it's not saying that to us. That should give you encouragement. We're not opening this book today because we thought our world is sufficiently messy and difficult that we're like, perhaps now we have the understanding we need to understand and decode, demystify this book. It's not that God put a riddle at the end of, of the Bible for us to discover in the 21st century. Its original understanding was available and tangible to its audience in the first century, and it's for our benefit by extension as believers today. So if you have to ask yourself, well, then what is the purpose? What is the message of Revelation? It is an enduring word of hope to God's people in a season of extreme difficulty spoken from Jesus Christ, king of his people. I mean, who wants that? Just Bill. <laughs> and, and then all the other introverts who, who aren't raising their hands. We want that. I mean, how many of you have come to a place, it might be why you're here today, it might be why you're watching online, going, Jesus, I want to hear from you. God, I want to know your voice. I'm, I'm leaning in and I'm attentive. I want to know you. You are welcome to and invited to pray those prayers, provided that you're also reading God's Bible. Because if you're not picking up the book, stop praying that way because his primary word and, and mode of speaking to you is through his written word, through the leading of his spirit. You want to hear from Jesus? It's right there. You want a word of encouragement? It's right here. And he writes to an original audience. 
a period of roughly would have been in the last 30 years of the first century, which were 30 years marked by persecution like the church has never seen. See, don't be a lazy reader of your Bible where you read the book of Acts and you're uh, hearing this phrase or this, this refrain over and over again that says, and the Lord added to their number daily and think, man, it just went gangbusters from there. Everything was up and to the right. No wonder the church still exists today. Don't get that into your head. We know that actually under Roman leadership and rule, after roughly the Emperor Nero, uh, the church faced incredible persecution for a period of about 30 years, where it was commonplace that, that to be a Christian meant you were marginalized, meant you were cut out of the economic system and structure, that you were um, pursued, torn apart, and killed for sport. That some were, were tied to horses that were driven in opposite directions to be torn apart, to be thrown to hungry lions, to actually be covered in pitch and set ablaze to illuminate gardens. This was the state of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus in that time. In fact, we, we see this, this is not just uh, in the historical writings, but we see this in the authors as they write to the early church as well, where Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, he says, don't be surprised when the fiery trial or tribulation comes upon you. Most commentators would say he's referring to the common circumstance of, of people in the church would have had friends and known people and known of people who were captured and set ablaze to light a garden as a human torch and not the cool one from Marvel Comics. That was for the young people. This was the church. This was the persecution they faced. And then consider the year 70 AD, one that would have been uh, front and center of the mind of the early century Christians, which would have marked the time where the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and three of its main speakers Leaders, church planters, heavy hitters would have been publicly removed from their places of worship and executed. That is Peter, Paul, and Timothy. Names that you'll recognize as you read your New Testament. Modern day equivalent, that would be like you opened up your devices after leaving here and found out that Tim Keller, John Piper, and D.A. Carson, gotta throw a Canadian in there, all got dragged out of their places of worship and killed in the streets. And we would look at each other and go, what's next? See, if you're reading this going, man, that, that persecution, that's not so bad. Our lives are hard now too, really? I mean, you think you'd fare much better? Alberta, we lose our minds when we have restrictions and when we have vaccinations and now you're going, yeah, we would do okay? I don't think so. We would, this is, we would crumble as a church in comparison to this. So when we open up the subsequent pages and chapters of Revelation, don't be so quick to judge the church that's not doing so well because that's their, the, the, the setting that they're in. And we need to read this and be encouraged. And we need to read this with the understanding of where Tertullian writes and says that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's incredible at this season, despite all the persecution they're facing, when it's not convenient, when it costs you greatly, when it would likely cost your life to follow Jesus, the church grows. The, the church flourishes. It's, it's in, in this moment that we're actually anchored in an understanding that a, a word of encouragement, word of hope that was given to the church where they realized, you know, it doesn't matter what you face, there's something greater at the end of all things, who will be standing there? King Jesus. I mean, that's the audacious claim of the gospel. 
He's better than all things. Anything you're holding on to in this life, he's better. The security and comforts of this life, he's better. The, the physical body and its health that you have, take it, destroy it. He's better. You get a new one, and I'm pretty sure it's better. You are worried about the kings of this world. Guess what? He is king over those kings, and he is the last voice, the last face you will see. Church, I'm, I'm saying that to us. I want us to have an eyes wide open understanding, not just of God's word, history, but our season in the story. Because we are entering a season, well, I would argue this. Some of you will actually remember there was a time in our nation where it was to your social advantage to go to church. I mean, if you went to church, that, that was your evidence to your community. You were a good person. You're a trustworthy salesman. You had reputable business practices. You weren't, you know, you weren't somebody to be avoided. You're somebody to be you know, pursued. And then that slipped into a, a season that we're more familiar with where it's kind of neutral. You go to church, okay, that's fine. And we are stepping well into a season where I would say this, the the easy days are gone. It will cost you something. You will be looked down upon. You will be called ignorant. You will be called discriminatory. You will be called foolish or wasteful at least with your time. To be a member and a joyful follower of Jesus Christ. You see, this hardship is telling us this. It's, it's amazing that when you strip away everything that is of the facade, you see what is really makes a person. I would say it this way. Actually, people under pressure, we get to see them as their true self. And consider Jesus. Immense pressure. Consider him in the garden Sweating drops of blood, physiological evidence of the stress that he was under when he prayed and pleaded with the Father, if there's another way, knowing that was what was before him, not only knowing what was before him, but as he went through the trial, unjust, unfair, as he was beaten, as he was spit on, as he was abused, as he was dragged up the hill and nailed to the cross, unshakable, unwavering, stood firm in his understanding of who he is, King of kings, Lord of lords. We follow people like that. The word given in Revelation is a picture of this is who Jesus is. You need to be reminded. You need to be anchored. You need to stand firm. And the church stood firm. Church, this is a word to us as well. Go back and look at verses five to seven. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of earth, to him who loves us and who has freed us. I love that. From our sins by his blood and made to us a kingdom. Priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, every, even those who have pierced him. All the tribes on earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. What it's saying is this. There will come a day where there's no denying it where everyone will, will have the same experience and same revelation, same understanding. Jesus is Lord. Whether you are on an affirming or a a condemning side, it is undeniable one day. And this is not to be little kids and be like, oh, I'll prove you right. Or you'll see. It's no. One day we will see. And we can anchor ourselves in that. You have to love what's being given to us as an encouragement. And we have been robbed of this as a church. The evil one has done a wonderful job of robbing this encouragement from us through apprehension and fear of this book. 
Because look at the titles. This is how Jesus introduces himself. I love it. Opening pages of the last book, who do you see? King Jesus. And this is what it says of him. Firstborn of the dead. Jesus was crucified and raised. What that means is, and this is our enduring hope, that because he was raised, we'll be raised with him. Because he had a resurrected body, so shall we. Because he was able to walk and talk and give hope to his disciples, we go, man, whatever is on the other side of eternity looks pretty awesome. He's the firstborn. He's the first installment. He's proof of purchase. He comes back to give us that encouragement and he re-ups that by standing in front of John in this vision being like, and I'm king. And notice the, the difference of the depiction. Have you ever seen Jesus like this? In glory? Voice like the waters, thundering? Eyes set ablaze and yet gentle? It's me. The first and the last. This is our picture. This is our enduring hope. The first of the born of the day. Jesus, the ruler of, and king of, of kings of this earth. That means he's sovereign. Nobody is set up in a authority or rulership that he was not aware of. Nothing has surprised him. You know, as much as you might have been disappointed by the election, it's okay. He's king over those kings and rulers. Jesus is the one who gets the final say. If you live in a family where somebody's got to get the last word in, guess who gets the real last word? Jesus. You can't one-up him. You don't even get the chance. Praises are to him. This is why, as followers of Jesus, we can say, praise be to God no matter what pain, sickness, hardship, or loss we experience, and still pray, Lord, give me healing, give me wholeness, give me restoration, and then understand whether it comes in this life or the next, it will come under his goodness and reign. He gets the final say. This is an incredible piece to us, because imagine the early church when they're like, our, our emperors, our authorities are inviting us into worship, that you were to come, grab a pinch of the incense, put it on the altar and say, Caesar is Lord, and when they would not do so, it cost them their life. So although we are uncomfortable, although we are diminished, although we are discouraged, we have not faced anything like that. We would crumble. But if the church, the early church, can do what they, what they did through faith and obedience to face all sorts of persecution, surely this is a word of encouragement to us when darkness creeps in our life, when hardship comes. Jesus is ruler over all kings, and Jesus, who is coming on the clouds. If you're a Bible reader, this is a hyperlink to Daniel 7. Daniel 7, which points to the Son of Man, the Son of Man being the title that Jesus gives to himself to be kind of like, guys, read your Bibles, I'm all over it. And it speaks to him in this way, Daniel 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. This is Jesus. You gotta love that. It's this picture of, you know, he tears open the sky and, and, and no one can deny who he is and if they were to try, they would be just rolled over in the very moment they thought it. 
He's the one who comes on the clouds. He's the one who brings things to a close. Verse eight, he's the alpha and omega. He says that of himself. That, that, those are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. So English translation, he is the A and the Z, or Z, you choose. And the implication, he's everything in between. In the biblical story, he is the word that spoke all things into being, and he's the final word at the close. And he is the word that became flesh and gave us hope for a life of meaning in the very middle of the story, which anchors all these things. It's all about Jesus. What, what that means, and there's so much theology, there's so much depth, there's so much teaching that we just don't have time for over that one statement where he says in a booming voice, I am the Alpha. I'm the omega. What that's implying is simply this. He, he either has a victory that is sure or he is able to impose his will that his victory will be sure and I would actually encourage you to hold the tension of both. I, I encourage you to think of it this way. If you've ever PVR'd a video, or not a video game, uh, PVR'd a video of a game, a sporting event that you wanted to watch but one of your friends lovingly told you the end result before you watched it, you can either watch it and say, you know, if your friend says, you know what, the team we're rooting for, the home team wins 20 to 5. Well, you can watch it, and if it's one minute to the end of the game, and your team is down 5 to nothing, it's an exciting game for you still. Why? Because you know they're going to win. They're going to score 20 points. I can't wait to see how it's done. This is the victory that Jesus has won for us on the cross. Or just like an athlete who is so skilled, so amazing, that it's as though they have the ability to impose their will on the court or on the field, so is Jesus. He is king. He is Lord. All history flows around him. All history bends to his will. No matter what, he's the one who wins. So no matter how many minutes on the scoreboard, no matter what the score, Jesus has and will win. This is a great encouragement for us, church. I had someone come up to me after the first service and said, Jesus wins. As if that just needed to be rebuilt in his heart one more time. This is for us. It's also not meant to, second point, not meant to scare us, not meant to intimidate us, not meant to confuse us. How many of us have not picked up this book? And I, I gotta be nervous, I, I gotta be honest, I'm nervous for myself as a preacher this morning. Because this is, in my community and how I've been raised, this is reserved for really skillful preachers. This is reserved for really mature Christians. You do not give a new believer a Bible and say, you know what, you're really going to like the last book. You kind of go, um, read as much as you like, but you know, treat that one with, with caution. Maybe, maybe let's just tear that out for now and we'll give it back to you later when you pass a certain test. We do that. And not to mention, there's all sorts of confusing literature, fictional stories, movies with Nicolas Cage that are about this book. If you didn't know that, you can Google it. And it doesn't help. We, we treat it with such fear and intimidation, confusion. It's not meant to be that, although it's meant to be weighty. And here's what I mean. It's primarily an encouragement to us. It was an encouragement to its original audience and its encouragement for us as well. But it's meant to be weighty because it speaks to the glory of God. I love that we are hammering that point out on the same Sunday that we're closing up the solas on Reformation Sunday, speaking to the glory of God, which simply means this. Glory means weight. 
Keller would put it this way, a stone has more weight in, than water, so when the stone sits in the stream, the water flows around it. God has more glory. Jesus, King Jesus, has more glory, so all history flows around him. So it's a weighty text. As we look at it this morning, it's a weighty text because it brings us to an understanding as an apocalyptic literature that God has glory and it's for his glory. We as created things find our fullness or conclusion in him. And when I say apocalyptic, I need to clarify because we, we, although this is apocalyptic literature, it's a genre of our Bibles, we see writing like this and we see pictorial uh, imagery like this in several other places in our Bible. I already mentioned Daniel. But apocalyptic doesn't mean what we think it means where we, we kind of bring that into modern day understanding is like cataclysmic destruction. We, we think of earthquakes, asteroids, zombies and plagues. And we think, how many, if you've watched B-rated movies where there's some kind of destruction happening in the world and some farmer or sub-character who really doesn't have anything to do with the main story, he says, guys, this was in the Bible, and then misquotes something from Revelation, and that's our cultural understanding of this book. That's not Revelation. Revelation, again, it's an enduring hope, and apocalyptic means this. It actually means to unveil it, think of it as pulling back the curtain. God in his grace and in his mercy and his encouragement to a people is almost doing this. Here's, here's the show. Here's all the stuff you see up front. You don't understand how it works. Let's pull back the curtain and you can see the unseen realm and be encouraged. That's why I've been so eager to teach this from the lens and from the time of year of Advent, some of you are like, why are we heading into Revelation toward Christmas? And that's because Christmas is a season marked by Advent. Advent is a season uh, of anticipation of Jesus' coming. It's what the church has done for hundreds of years as they've kind of reflected back on the Christmas story. God who came in flesh to change everything for us that we might have right relationship with him. And we would look back on that, but for followers of Jesus, we can look forward as well. He's coming back. It's not his first return only. It's also his second return where his voice brings closure. The book ends, the right book ends to the history that is our story as we know it, where he spoke it into being and he'll speak it into close. But here's the thing, an apocalypse is this. It's not an unveiling of catastrophic doom. It's an unveiling as one chapter closes and another opens. This is a great hope for those of you who are followers of Jesus. This is meant to be both encouraging and corrective. I would say it this way. If the final vision, the final voice, the final person is Jesus, and you, you need to be encouraged if you're a follower of Christ because if you're really worried about getting into heaven, but the idea of hanging out with Jesus doesn't thrill you all that much, then stop worrying about it. You wouldn't like it anyway. I mean, you can read page one and then go close the book. If that doesn't thrill you, then don't read it. It's only gonna discourage you. If you love Jesus, then keep reading. You're gonna love it. He wins a whole new story for you, one that has no end. See, that's, that's the picture. That's what I, I anticipate and, and I hope that we can re 
hardwire into our, our hearts for an encouragement as we approach Christmas this season. He's coming back. More and more I'm hearing people in this season of discomfort and uncertainty and change, transition, all those fit, saying, man, could Jesus just come back? I felt that too. But that's not, that's not the right attitude because that's a way of just going like, I've given up on this. Can God, can you just give up on it too? He doesn't. It's like, I've got work to do. And when it's time to close it, I'll close it. And we can rest in that tension knowing that we stand with him victorious. This is why Westminster Catechism, catechism means instruction. It was to catechize or instruct children and young people as they grew in an understanding of God. This is helpful and we need to recapture this. Because now we have uh, several generations of people who have just been picking up their spiritual understanding from wherever they've been in life, and then you hear them as an adult conveying their spiritual understanding. You're like, where did you get that? A little bit here, a little bit there, and it makes no sense. This is why point number one that they would express to young people was this. What is the chief end of humanity? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. You are made for him, not he for you. This is a theological book. Telos means, it's Greek for the aim or the trajectory. This is a book that helps us understand the trajectory of all things. You see, either God or Jesus in our relationship to him is a means to an end or he is the end. What I mean by means to an end, I've already mentioned this. There was a season in our lives, in our history, where being a churched person, being a cultural Christian was to your advantage. And so I would follow Jesus to get something. I hear this in young people where they're like, I really want to marry a Christian guy or a Christian girl. And what I'm hearing underneath of that sometimes is, because then grandma will be happy. Because then my parents will get off my back. Or then at least I know that they're probably a faithful or good person. That is a means to an end because you are not pursuing Jesus for Jesus. You're pursuing Jesus for whatever that you want to make you happy. That's why we see people in this season easily dropping church, Christianity, faith. Why? There's hardship now. Following Jesus means picking up difficulty, looking foolish amongst your neighbors, being kind of like sheepish when they're like, where were you on Sunday? Well, church. If that's not working for you, you're pursuing Jesus to some end where Jesus is the end. We pursue Jesus to get Jesus. That's why this book should be encouraging to you. And if it's not, examine your heart. You might be pursuing him for the wrong reasons. If the idea of all things coming to an end is undesirable to you, be like, I got stuff to do. I'm really, I'm really enjoying my work, or I'm really enjoying this relationship, or I, I'm, I'm on the last level of my video game. Your priorities are out of whack. If it's Jesus come, yes and amen, I can't wait, then this book is a wonderful encouragement to you. I would encourage you this way. Revelation is not saying anything new. This is our third point. It might be saying it in new ways, but it does not stand apart from God's word. When I was a youth pastor, I used to do an annual event that was a treasure hunt. I would literally give kids shovels and a map of the neighborhood, and they would go dig places. I got calls and emails, yes, and we had to figure out better ways of doing this. But one year, I gave them this treasure map and all these clues, and in about 10 minutes in, this group of really smart girls, of course it was girls, because the boys were just digging holes, um, <laughs> 
they, they found the buried treasure in about 10 minutes and I had to, you know, I didn't know what to do for the rest of the night. So we, we changed up the, the event where I would do the same thing, but there was one vital clue, one piece of information that they did not get, could not solve the puzzle without, and I gave it to everybody in the last 15 minutes just to drag on the event. You're hearing that, you're like, oh, future youth pastors in the room, this is, this is wisdom I'm imparting to you. <laughs> Revelation is not that. This is not some coded message. This is not some piece at the end that is meant to go, aha, now we get it. This is not Jesus going, ah, you know that one thing you didn't get the whole time? Well, here it is. No, he's reaffirming everything that's already been said. You'll find, actually, if you go to Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says in succinct order, clarity, many of the things that we read in Revelation. There's nothing here that is surprising or new, especially as we look at chapter one. Jesus understood himself. The angels herald him as, and the New Testament speaks to him as coming king. And when he steps onto the page as king, are you surprised? It's not saying anything new. It does not stand apart. And it is not meant to be read, as our final point, in linear order, as a narrative. I know we like that. It's easy. It flows I mean, we, we introduce the story, we, we get ingratiated to the character, the character you know, has some kind of hardship or tribulation, but then they overcome it and we love the story. Revelation is better understood this way. It's not what John says next, but what he sees next. As if grabbing pictures that are, are, are randomly given to him as in a vision. Anyone have dreams that you're like, that made no sense? This dream makes sense, but it's not happening in linear fashion. Let me give you an example. I'm looking forward to preaching on this text. This is Revelation 12, 12 verse 13 to 17. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, but the woman was given two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness. To, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and a half time. And the serpent poured water out like a river out of its mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river and the dragon that the dragon had poured out from its mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. We read that. And every commentary, every scholar, every uh, understanding biblical reader goes, we know what's happening. This is the Christmas story. This is God in flesh being born of a virgin named Mary who the serpent introduced in the opening chapters of our book, the one who's an enemy of God through rebellion that has been causing an instigator to the rebellion in our hearts pursues not only Christ, but all those who place faith in him, wages war against his church, his offspring. That's us. See, we are to understand this in a way that this narrative has already taken place, but it's been taking place for all time, and it is continuing to do so. Church, I want us to understand this. These are not new concepts. 
but this is an unveiling, this is a pulling back the curtain to see an unseen realm, one in which scripture speaks to many times over, but we miss because we are either distracted, lazy, or unseeing, because we see this as well in Ephesians 6, where it says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Church, here's where I'm encouraged and I want you to be encouraged also. That we are not born into freedom, but we have inherited an ancient battle and one that we have have and are in need to battle with greater fervency because we need to wake up. I want to give us this book back because where the Western church is guilty, where I would own this as much as I hope you would own this, is we have been lulled into a false sense of security and sleepiness that we have forgotten the hope that is in this final book where Jesus comes and he says, this is mine. Uh, Disclosure, hinting at where I land theologically. Um, I really don't think the end of time is when God just wipes out everything. It doesn't fit the biblical narrative for me. God who creates and, and spends time going, oh, that's good, and that's good, oh, and that's good. And then invests so heavily that he'll give his only son that we would be ransomed back to him. I believe that he is, he is reclaiming through his word in the close of all things, all things to himself, that this was a world not permanently but temporarily lost to him through our rebellion and the evil in the world that he is going to set right. And part of that is a sleepiness and an apathy to go, we're pretty comfortable with this kingdom as it is. And that the darkness has stepped in and we need to fight back. Church, that we would rally in an encouragement to go, this is our mission. This is our hope. We've been lulled into a false sense of security that's no security at all. I, I've mentioned this many times over, but my, my grandfather, who is now with Christ, my dad's dad, he was a painter. And if you know painters, their vehicles are only good for them. No one ever wants to drive them after. They're just covered in paint, destroyed beyond measure. Well, it was a van with two front seats, and the whole back of it was cargo van with, with paint cans and, and, and ladders and that sort of thing. And so I used to work for him as a teenager. And so there was my, my grandfather behind the wheel and a legitimate staff member in the, in the passenger seat. And when I had to ride with him, he would turn over a five-gallon can, and he would set it down and be like, there you go, that's your seat. As a teenager, I remember being like, that's not very safe. I remember my grandpa one day, I don't know if it was humor or what, it was just, he's like, oh, you're right, hold on, gets a bungee cord and straps it from one end of the bucket to the other, and he's like, just put that over your knees. And here's the dumb thing, I did. <laughs> you know that that's, in an accident, it's not just that I go through the windshield, the, the paint can comes with me. <laughs> Church, our, our understanding of things has been as a security as silly as that. And we need to be grounded again in the gospel. We need to be grounded again in our hope. We need to be grounded again in a picture of at the end of all things, King Jesus. And do you know him or not? Is your life lived to him as your end or is he just a means to that end? Let me pray. So Father, I thank you for your word. And I pray that that would be true of our hearts, that we would look to, we'd be roused uh, out of our sleepiness to a picture and a longing for 
King Jesus and the reclaiming of all things. And Lord, we'll talk about this more in our series, but I thank you that you have given us opportunity to be ambassadors and missionaries to this world, to be starting that work now, but Lord, one day we'll be partners with you and bring it into completion. And at the end of all things is your voice, is your presence. All this life can be uncertain, but Lord, there is a great certainty in the end of everything we'll hear from King Jesus. So Lord, I I pray for those who are discouraged by this, that you would work in their hearts, you would change their hearts to desire that. For those of us who are being warmed to this, who are encouraged, may they pick up this book and grab the encouragement that's there for them. And Lord, thank you for a picture of what, to see the unseen and to understand the work that you've done for us and that we'll celebrate in a moment at your table. In Jesus' name, amen. As we sing this next song, I I just wanna invite you that uh, every other week at Mission Hill Church, we observe the Lord's table. That, That is communion, and so you can come and grab the elements and come back to your seats. We'll observe them together after one song, and Bill will lead us in doing that. Let's stand, and we can sing.